I'm joined in the studio today by Asif Munir, consultant neurologist and andrologist at University College Hospital in London. Asif is one of the co-authors of this week's BMJ Clinical Review, which discusses the diagnosis and management of men who present with erectile dysfunction. Asif, erectile dysfunction is a sensitive topic, uh, which can be difficult for men to talk to health professionals about. So do we actually know how common the problem is? I mean, there have been studies done uh, internationally which have looked at the prevalence of erectile dysfunction. Um, it obviously varies depending on the cohort of patients that have used in the study and the methodology. But generally, the larger studies have shown that probably in the region of over 50% will report erectile dysfunction in the age group of between 40 and 70. And when somebody presents with erectile dysfunction, what sort of underlying causes should the health professional have in their mind as they're sort of going through the history and examination? One of the biggest risk factors is age. Apart from that, the other medical problems that they need to be looking for are diabetes, heart disease, and also if they're on any medications that may be contributing to the erectile dysfunction. You mentioned as well there are certain lifestyle factors which make it more likely. Can you tell us a bit about those and what we should be on the alert for? I think lack of exercise, smoking, obesity um, are all uh, big risk factors that need to be looking for. I mean, sometimes uh, individuals, when they start doing regular exercise and uh, adopting a healthier lifestyle, will probably find their erectile dysfunction can improve without the need for any medication. When we get somebody coming in to see us with this problem, um, as a GP, can you take us through what we should be doing and asking the patient sort of systematically? So how, how should we go about assessment? I think the assessment is, uh, is, of, is very important to do this accurately and to be fairly focused. All patients need to be assessed as to whether the main problem is erectile dysfunction or is it a sexual dysfunction such as uh, ejaculatory disturbance or um, delayed orgasm because quite commonly patients do get these uh, mixed up. And again, they can be interrelated as well. Um, Taking the patient's history to see whether the erectile dysfunction occurs all the time or only sometimes, is it situational, can help to identify whether this is predominantly a psychogenic problem or whether it's uh, an organic problem uh, with the patient. Then identifying particular risk factors which may not be picked up in the patient's general, uh, general history. Um, which include uh, symptoms suggestive of diabetes, any underlying heart disease, particularly in the younger patients, because one of the uh, main factors here is endothelial dysfunction. And a lot of studies now have shown that if uh, a young individual, a young man, presents with erectile dysfunction, his lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease does increase. So it's a good opportunity for primary care physicians to pick up this early on and even send them for cardiovascular assessment early on. If we think about sort of the examinations that we need to be doing, what sort of baseline should a GP or other health professional be undertaking in a man who presents with erectile dysfunction? Um, Well, looking at the patient's general overall health, their BMI, uh, doing a penile examination, because there can be other penile disorders contributing to erectile dysfunction, and these include um, diseases such as Peyronie's disease. It may be an anatomical problem, say, for instance, with the foreskin that can inhibit the erections. Um, Measuring the testicle size as well, because that could point to an endocrine uh, problem as well. And then um, you need to focus examination to the prostate if you think it's indicated, but not everyone needs a prostate examination. So who should we be considering prostate examinations in? Generally, those individuals, firstly, who present with ejaculatory dysfunction, 
can need to have a have a prostate examination. Uh, men who request uh, screening for prostate cancer and those individuals who are over the age of 50 who've got risk factors such as first degree relatives uh, would be another indication for a prostate examination. And what sort of investigations are sort of required in primary care? The basic investigations should include a uh, blood glucose and lipid profile. Um, also a hormone analysis is useful particularly if the um, examination does indicate that the testicles are of small size or there are um, issues with regards to secondary sexual characteristics. Um, apart from that, you know, there aren't generally any other specific uh, tests that need to be required. A lot of these are done in uh, secondary care for more complex cases. Let's move on to talk a little bit about treatment options. I think the treatments that most primary care physicians are going to be au fait with are the phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Can you tell us a bit about those and how they work? Well, these are the most uh, common first-line treatment options in individuals because they're widely available, they're easy to administer and fairly well tolerated as well. Generally, the underlying basis for phosphodiesterase inhibitors is that they inhibit an enzyme uh, called uh, phosphodiesterase type 5, uh, which normally is involved in the breakdown of uh, cyclic GMP. Now, this is an intracellular mediator which causes smooth muscle relaxation in the penis, in the vasculature, in the corpus cavernosum smooth muscle. And with the uh, increase in the nitric oxide, which is the, the main mediator here, uh, the reduction in the tone of this smooth muscle lets in more blood into the penis. And then what happens is that there's trapping of blood due to compression of what we call the subtunical venules. So therefore more blood comes in than leaves the penis, which causes uh, rigidity and improves the erections. And when should we be considering these types of medications? What sort of clinical situations? It's very unlikely that individuals who do present with organic problems such as um, high cholesterol, diabetes, uh, heart disease, uh, will have their erections improved just by lifestyle modifications. They should all be encouraged to stop smoking, adopt a healthy lifestyle, do regular exercise. But those factors alone may not be enough, and I think it'll be reasonable to start them um, on a PD-5 inhibitor, uh, provided they don't have any contraindications, you know, such as nitrate therapy, for instance. Um, and there are some drug interactions as well that they need to be aware of. Um, so I think um, if an individual uh, still has erectile dysfunction despite undergoing lifestyle modifications or you feel that there's an organic basis to it, then it'd be reasonable to start these as first-line treatments. You mentioned some of the contraindications. Are there any other populations which we should sort of take care in prescribing these medications with? Is there anyone who... You know, we should sort of just do extra investigations in first before starting them, for example. Yeah, apart from those individuals that have uh, other uh, treatments which will interact with um, with PD-5 inhibitors, uh, the biggest one is nitrate therapy. So concomitant nitrate therapy is a contraindication. There are also those individuals who are taking treatments for low urine tract symptoms, uh, which are called alpha blockers. There can be an interaction there. Um but you also need to ensure that the individual is fit enough to have sex. Um, so their exercise tolerance is, is also important. And we generally say, you know, can they go up a couple of flights of stairs or do a round of gardening as a measure of their uh, exercise tolerance? 
if we think about sort of practical um, implications of starting these medications, what advice should we give patients with regards to how to take them, what to watch out for, when to worry? There's um, three commonly prescribed PD-5 inhibitors and they vary in terms of their time of onset and their half-life and duration of uh, action. Um, For some of them, it's best to take them on an empty stomach um, and you need to ensure that the uh, the individual sexually stimulated at the same time. Avoid things like grapefruit juice at the same time of taking the tablet. Um, and some of them uh, do uh, have an onset of action which is slightly longer uh, than the short acting ones. So they have to wait at least couple. Well, take it at least a couple of hours before uh, sexual intercourse. Do we know much about how effective these are? What data is available? There's um, a lot of studies which have been done uh, which have looked at the efficacy of PD-5 inhibitors and on the whole they have shown that compared to, compared to placebo these uh, uh, PD-5 inhibitors will improve the erections in individuals uh, who present with erectile dysfunction. Um, there's not been a huge amount of data in terms of head-to-head studies but they all have uh, an underlying uh, physiological mechanism which is very similar and they're equally efficacious. The only difference really is in terms of those individuals that request more spontaneity and they'd be more likely to uh, benefit from the longer acting PD-5 inhibitors. Um, And now there are other indications with regards to lower urine tract symptoms which are um, obviously more prevalent in patients that do present with erectile dysfunction as well. I was interested in your article, you mentioned um herbal remedies and you know there's not much in the way of evidence for those can you tell us a bit about what people sometimes get hold of over the counter and what the recommendations should be from a health professional point of view the clinical data on herbal remedies is very limited Um, there's only about three herbal remedies which have been looked into and they're very popular in southeast asia um, and there are obviously um, sources uh, to obtain these in, in the uk I must admit, not a huge number of patients do opt for these. Um, it's mainly those individuals who want to avoid taking formal medication or admitting to the problem that may may try the, these these medications. I don't think they're going to really have a role in uh, men who present with uh, underlying diabetes or cardiovascular disease or hyperlipidemia or those who've had pelvic surgery, which are big risk factors for erectile dysfunction. Um, and until we get more studies, uh, particularly any, uh, some randomised studies with these herbal remedies, I think we're a little bit unsure as to what their role is going to be. Okay. And then before we move on to talk about the options in secondary care, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the role of testosterone in the treatment of erectile dysfunction. Is there a role for this therapy? Um, there's, there is some data which uh, purports to using testosterone as first-line treatment. I don't think this is uh, th- uh, an indication to give testosterone as, as first line. Um, you will have a, uh, a cohort of patients who have got primary or secondary hypogonadism from a young age who do need testosterone treatment uh, as a replacement, and those individuals will probably have normal erections as a result of that. But to give testosterone as first-line treatment in someone who's got a risk factor such as ageing is probably not the uh, first-line treatment. I think first-line treatment should be a PD-5 inhibitor, And then if the testosterone levels are significantly low or they're symptomatic with other symptoms, then you need to consider whether testosterone replacement here is is actually indicated. But I think there's a lot of controversy with regards to the use of testosterone in these individuals. And we normally advise that uh, 
given testosterone as, as first line of treatment is probably not the best option. So if we think about if a phosphodiesterase inhibitor has been tried and it's not working um, or it's, there, there are other issues and people need referral to a specialist, what would happen after specialist referral and what are the options for treatment further down the line? Um, when individuals fail uh, PD5 inhibitors in primary care, uh, they need to be assessed to see whether they need any specialised uh, investigations. Um, in secondary care, we're, we're very good at differentiating between psychogenic and organic cause of erectile dysfunction because there's more specialised investigations that are available, such as penile Doppler studies and what we call nocturnal penile tumescent studies. Um, however, one of the main roles of secondary care is to use alternative treatments uh, because PD5 inhibitors will possibly work in some individuals or they may stop working after a while, mainly due to disease progression. And then second-line treatments then can be instituted, such as intracavernosal prostaglandin injections, or these can be given intraurethrally. If they fail or the patients don't tolerate them, then there's other options, such as uh, surgery, which involves implantation of a penile prosthesis, um, or even a vacuum uh, device, which is a little bit cumbersome, but some patients prefer it uh, rather than undergoing major surgery. And how efficacious are these second line options that you're talking about? I mean, prostaglandins may work in about 60-70% of patients, um, but again, it's just like uh, any other pharmacotherapy. Because of the disease progression with the individual, there may come a time whereby these agents won't be as efficacious as, as they were at the start, um, in which case they need to go into third line treatment. So as if you talk in your review about penile prostheses, which our GP population might not be familiar with, can you tell us a bit about those? A penile prosthesis surgery is an end-stage solution and we reserve it for those individuals whereby the pharmacotherapies have all failed and they don't tolerate a vacuum device and they want to have surgery to ensure that they get rigidity and girth. Um, there's two main types of penile prosthesis. Uh, one is what we call a malleable prosthesis, which are fairly uh, easy to insert and then consist of two uh, cylinders put into the corpus cavernosum. The more complicated one is the inflatable penile prosthesis which uh, involves putting in two cylinders into the penis. Uh, there's a pump inserted into the scrotum and a reservoir into the abdomen and the idea is that the pump is squeezed and fluid goes from the reservoir into the cylinders and this uh, results in an increase in the girth uh, of the penis. Um, and also rigidity, and this allows them to penetrate for sexual intercourse. Um, although it's not entirely uh, equivalent to a, a normal erection, um, it does offer them the ability to penetrate, and the satisfaction rates are you know, over 85-90%, both partner and also patient satisfaction rates. So they do offer us uh, an end-stage solution, because there wouldn't be any other alternative for these individuals. And how often do men require a penile prosthesis? How commonly are these used? In the UK, approximately uh, 250 to 300 penile prostheses are inserted uh, annually, which is a lot less than what uh, is inserted in equivalent countries, similar-sized populations in Europe. Um, they're particularly uh, good for patients who have undergone major pelvic surgery, such as radical prostatectomy, whereby the underlying cause is damage to the cavernosal nerves. Um, and they fail pharmacotherapies fairly early, but this gives them an option um, after surgery to have sexual intercourse. The other big groups uh, are uh, individuals with diabetes, which have failed pharmacotherapies, and spinal cord injury patients, 
So it does offer um, an option for these difficult uh, groups of patients. And, and finally, are there any other sort of new treatments that are on the horizon that we should be looking out for? There are um, some non-invasive treatment options uh, which are being investigated. They are available, but the trials have been very small in single-centre studies. And this includes uh, low-intensity shockwave treatment. Uh, and the underlying basis there is to use a device which causes uh, neoangiogenesis within the penis and increase the, the blood flow. Um, a similar device have been, uh, has been tried in cardiovascular disease. Um, and similarly, they feel that there can be neuroangiogenesis in the penis, which will have a similar effect. Um, further down the line, there are uh, there's work being done uh, looking at gene therapy. Um, there's also alternative PD5 inhibitors, which are available uh, outside the UK, but are now starting to come into into the UK market as well. Um, and there's been ongoing research looking at direct SGC activators, which are uh, which actually target other parts of the PD-5 pathway. Okay, great. Well, Asif, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me. And Asif's article on erectile dysfunction can now be found on bmj.com. <laughs>